the end of service. Don't forget the couples. Sign up for the couples dinner. I told her I, I said that when we did announcements. She wasn't in here when we did announcements. Okay. <laughs> I got the look. I, I need some marriage counseling. Anybody here? Uh, <laughs> we need Friday night couples dinner. <laughs> Well, if you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 18 this morning. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 18. Starting in verse 15, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. The title of my message this morning is, It's All About Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your church, to be in this place, Lord, where we know, Holy Spirit, you are here to teach us and instruct us in all things pertaining to life and godliness. Father, we pray that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us. Father, we pray your blessing upon our children downstairs as they're being taught your word at the very moment as well. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again yet. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today. Help them see their need for you. Turn from their sin and turn to you today and be born again. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christ should have first place in our lives. The preeminent place in everything. Now, we told this is true. We are told why. It's true because Jesus Christ of all the ages. Now, there are examples of this word preeminent. In the ancient city of Rome, a golden milestone was set up in the center of the city. Every milestone in the great Roman Empire was measured out from this golden milestone. It was the preeminent milestone in all the Roman Empire. Now, the astronomers, they tell us that there's one fixed star in the heavens. They measure all the other stars by this fixed star. It is preeminent, the preeminent star in the solar system. In Washington, D.C., all the downtown streets and avenues run towards the capital. The capital of our country is the preeminent building in the beautiful city of Washington, D.C. And now, in Kansas City, there is one football team that is preeminent above the rest. They measure all the other teams by this team. How about them chiefs? All right. All that to say, <laughs> the book of Colossians is about Jesus Christ. He is preeminent in everything. He is the exalted Christ, the sovereign Christ, the supreme Christ, the one who is all of all in all. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship with a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation in the plan of God is inseparably linked to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. 
When you come to experience salvation, you are brought into a relationship with a person, the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Acts 4.12 tells us, and there is salvation in no one else, no other person, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is totally unique from every other human being who ever existed or ever will exist. Story of a little boy who looked into the sky and asked his mother, Is God up there? When she assured him that he was, the youngster replied, Wouldn't it be nice if we would put his head out and let us see him? Well, what this little boy doesn't understand was that God has let us see him in the person of his son. We don't have to guess what God is like. By sending Christ to earth as a man, the Heavenly Father fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing for us here in this chapter. He rolls back the sky and presents Christ in all of his glory and all of his majesty. Now in so doing, he's refuting those false teachers that have been coming into the church and, and he's stopping what they're, they're trying to propagate. Now this is a great strategy and paint an accurate picture of Christ so that nothing else compares. And as a result, your life will be changed forever and impacted. Now if you're taking notes... I want to point out three things that gives us this bright picture of who Christ is so that nothing else compares. We'll look at these three things in relation to to Jesus. Number one, Jesus in relation to God. Number two, Jesus in relation to creation. Number three, Jesus in relation to his church. First, number one, Jesus in relation to God. Do you ever wonder what Jesus looked like? I mean, that's certainly a good question. There have been artists over the years that, that, that have had all sorts of imaginations about what, what he looks like. We've seen many depictions of Christ. You know, it's interesting that the Bible gives no actual description uh, of what Christ looked like. There's a, there's a figurative ones in, in Revelation, but that's it. You would have thought that someone, someplace, you know, would have taken the time to give us a, a few details. I mean, we have four Gospels. Couldn't one of the guys said, well, Jesus is about five foot ten. He weighs, you know, about, you know, blonde hair, green eyes, you know. Couldn't someone have told us what he looked like? You know, probably because God knows our propensity for idol worship. If he'd given us a description, we no doubt would have made images of it and worshipped the image instead of him. I mean, we do a pretty good job of doing that even without knowing what he looked like. You know, the traditional concept is, is, of course, Jesus that looks like a surfer dude. You know, he's got... Beats blonde hair, you know, parted down the middle, the little tiny beard, kind of forked in the middle. I tell you this, uh, this much. I don't think Jesus had blonde hair. I don't think he had blue eyes. In fact, coming from that part of Israel at that particular time in human history, his skin was probably quite dark. His eyes were probably quite dark. His beard would have been dark. His hair would have been coarse. He wouldn't look like a surfer. But you know what? That's not important doesn't matter what color his skin was, what, what color his eyes was. I don't care how tall or short he was. That's not the point. It's not what he looks like that's important. It's who he is. Again, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The word for image in the Greek is, is, uh, is icon, which we drive our, our English word icon from. It means an image or a representation. So we would say that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. But he's so much more than that. When you think of an image, we think of, a, uh, of one dimension. Jesus is the three-D dimension of the invisible God. Because the meaning of the word image goes way beyond just an image. It carries the idea of revealing the, the personal character of God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 in the New Living Translation. 
The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. John put it this way, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. See, the God of the Bible who, who wants to be known has declared Himself through His Son. Now, people, they have a whole lot of ideas about what God is like. To the Hindu, they say, well, God must be loving and benevolent and gentle. Therefore, he must be a cow. Or to the, you know, the American Indian watching an eagle soar endlessly and majestically upon the wind currents. Well, God is an eagle. Or the ancient Egyptians, you know, they saw the awesome power of the sun and say, well, God is, is Ra. God is a sun. Each culture speaks partial truth, but all miss the total picture because they're blind. And so was all of humanity. So what does God do? He comes and He dwells among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if I want to know what God is like, I don't have to try and figure out His nature. I can study the life of Jesus Christ for He alone reveals God in totality. He alone, again, is the image of the invisible God. Now, every religious group that's out there, they want Jesus to be a part of their system or part of their philosophy, but they want Jesus on their own terms. They want to define Him in their own ways. But, but here is the way that it always comes out. Jesus is prominent, but he's not preeminent. Let me say that again. He's prominent, but he's not preeminent. He's important, some would say, very important, but he's not supreme. Let me give you a few examples of this. Jesus is obviously important to the Jehovah Witnesses. Listen how they would define him. They would say that Jehovah's first creation was his only begotten son, that Jesus was Michael the archangel who became a man, that Jesus was a perfect man, not God in the flesh, that Jesus did not rise from the dead in this physical body, but as a spirit. And they also claim that Jesus returned to the earth invisibly in 1914. The Mormons, to whom Jesus is also very important to them, they believe Jesus was the first spirit to be born in heaven, that the devil was born as a spirit after Jesus in the morning of preexistence, that Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers, and we are all born as siblings in heaven to them both, God had sexual relations with Mary to make the physical body of Jesus, and that Jesus' sacrifice was not able to cleanse us from all of our sins, so God's work are, works are necessary, good works are necessary for salvation. How about the New Age? Well, Jesus is a kindred spirit. Jesus is an enlightened master who manifests the divine power, a power potentially available to all who enter the New Age. They refer to him in various positive terms as, as master, guru, adept, avatar, shaman, uh, shaman, and wayshower. He's revered along with other religious leaders such as Buddha, Krishna, and Confucius. Islam says Jesus is a very great prophet, second only to Muhammad. He's not the son of God and certainly not divine and he was not crucified for the sins of the world. See, what all of these have in common is Jesus is prominent, but he's not preeminent. He's important, but he's not supreme. And that basically is the same lie the false teachers in Colossae were spreading back in Paul's day. They would say that Jesus is a good starting point, but if you really want to go deeper, then a lot more is needed. And of course, they would provide what, what they wanted you to, to, to know. So Paul here is refuting them. He says, Jesus, in relation to God, is not only the image of the invisible God, but look at verse 15. He is the firstborn over all creation, it says. Now the Jehovah Witnesses, they love, and other cults love this verse. 
Because they love to take it out of context and say, well, because it says Jesus was the firstborn, that means he was created. Therefore, he couldn't be eternal, he couldn't be divine, denying the deity of Jesus Christ. But if you define this word firstborn in the Greek, it's the word prototokos. It refers to, uh, uh, only, not only refers to being first chronologically, but it also refers to being first in priority. A good example of this is over in Genesis chapter 25. Though Isaac had twin sons, the firstborn he called Esau, and his second son was called Jacob, who later changed his name to Israel. But when Moses is going to stand before the Pharaoh to ask him to let the children of Israel go, here's what the Lord tells Moses in Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. How could Israel be his firstborn? Esau was older than Israel. And in terms of nations, Israel wasn't the oldest nation. Egypt was older than Israel. But you see, Israel was first in God's eyes. Israel was the most uh, important. Israel was preeminent to God, my firstborn. Sometimes the word firstborn means the greater one, as it does here. See, Paul's point is not to say that Jesus is a created being, but his point is to say that Jesus is head over everything. And Paul will continue to say this over and over again, just in case he didn't get it the first time. So it has very little to do with chronology and everything to do with distinction and honor. And Paul is saying when it comes to Jesus, he is completely supreme. There is none above him. He is first in rank and in honor. Now here's why. This brings us to point number two, Jesus in relation to creation. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now we know Genesis 1-1 tells us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That he created them. By his command, out of nothing, he created. There was nothing God spoke, the universe sprang into existence. What Paul is telling us here is that the one who did all of that was Jesus Christ. But Paul tells us, or John rather, tells us the same thing in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. See, there's no doubt that the creative force of God is none other than Jesus Christ. Everything that was created was made by him, and nothing was created apart from him. Now, Paul gives us a list here of what that includes. The extent of his creation includes all things, it says here, that are in heaven and that are on earth. All things. And it's been long recognized and documented that insects are the most diverse group of organisms, meaning that the number of species of insects are more than any other group in the world. And I think most of them live in Missouri. But anyway. <laughs> Do you know there are over 900,000 catalog insects with billions of subgroups of these species? That are, they're all created by Christ. There's no limit to Jesus' creativity that is seen in creation. I'm a, amazed at it. I never, never cease to be amazed by it. I, I'm not in the bugs. Okay, but there are, are 17,500 species of butterflies in the world. This one has got to be one of the most beautiful that I found. Let's move to the ocean. This is the mandarin fish. One of the most beautiful fish in the ocean. I mean, look at the colors of that thing. Let's move to the animal world. The most beautiful animal in the world. Now, as much as I really don't like snakes, take a look at that one. That's amazing. 
That's called the California red-sided garter snake. I'm mean, looking at the color in that. I, I see it on the back screen. I know you're looking at it there, but I'm going, wow. You know, it, it's amazing. Jesus, he created that. Now, it looks really huge in that picture right there, but it really, it's like, it's a garter snake, so it's only about this big, but they got a close-up of it, and it looks, you know, even though it's beautiful, it, it's a snake. <laughs> but Jesus did that. He created that with all its color. See, what, but Christ is not only the creative creation, which is amazing, but it's also the creator of the universe, of the heavens. Our sun's diameter is 864,000 miles across. That means that you could put 1.3 million planets the size of the earth inside of our sun. But that's nothing compared to this star called Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is 215 million miles across, which means you could put 1,167,300,000 planets the size of earth inside of it. And then there's a star called Antares, which is even bigger. I mean, look at that. There's a little, in the left-hand corner there, you, you see there's a little spot right there, really, really small. That's the size of our sun. Not that that's the sun. Think, think about this. Betelgeuse is relatively close to our solar system in cosmic, cosmic terms, estimated to be in our neighborhood only 600 light years away. That, that's really close to us. But our universe contains billions and billions and billions of solar systems with similar stars just like that. Jesus made them all. I mean, things we can't see, Jesus made. Folks, that, that Jesus spoke this into existence. I mean, it should blow our mind. And as I said, and that's only what's, what's visible. Imagine how huge the unseen world is around us. He's created all of that as well. Verse 16, it says he's created thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Because not everything that's real is visible. There are things that we can't see that are very, very real. And this includes the spirit realm. It's real. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. Paul gives us a glimpse when he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We can't see it visually, but man, we know it's there. Listen, that too, Christ created Christ is the creator of absolutely everything. The heavens, the earth, all that's in them, visible and invisible. But get this, Christ is not only the creator, he's also the beginning and the end. Jesus said this in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. In other words, Jesus set the plan in motion. He He created everything and he will bring all things to an end. He has a plan, he has a purpose, and he'll work it out. Why? Well, again, look at verse 16. Because all things were created through him and for him, or literally unto him. It's really an amazing statement and really a, a key to life. Not only was everything created by and through Jesus, everything was created for Jesus. All of creation is for his good pleasure. So that means you were created, I was created for, for, for his good pleasure. Now, this drives some people crazy. This is where prideful men and women really get upset. Because they think that they were created for their own good pleasure, not God's. And that's the reason why people like that love evolution so much. It's not because evolution makes sense to them, because it doesn't. It's not because it's scientific, because it's not. Or even that there's any evidence for it. In fact, there's plenty of evidence in the contrary. No, the reason why people love to embrace evolution is because evolution allows man and woman to be their own gods. 
But if you hold on to and you believe in a God who created everything, then that puts each and every one of us under God's authority. Evolution takes us out from under God's authority and allows us to be God into ourselves. That's why people buy into it. That's why people love it. The problem is, being your own God, little God, just doesn't work. It doesn't work because you and I were created to live in fellowship with the one true God. We were created to do His will. We were created to walk in the plan that God has for our lives. And if you live apart from what you were created for, your life will fall apart. It just doesn't work. It really is a secret of life. Jesus is not the created one. He is the creator who created you and me so we might bring Him glory. Psalm 118 verse 24 says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What does that mean? Well, it means that this day is made for Him and the only way it will work is if we live for Him because in so doing, I will be fulfilling the very reason I was created, the very reason you were created. Now, some people might say, well, I don't really like that. You know, I'd rather live for myself, you know, watch out for number one. And if you can't please everyone, you've got to please yourself. Ricky Nelson used to sing. Well, you know, the Lord would ask, how's that working out for you? <laughs> how, how are you handling that? Because we're designed to walk in the plan that God has for our lives. And then there are times and that we do wrestle with that. And we think that we know what's best. I think of the story of, of Jacob when he had a wrestling match with God. Jacob's problem was that, you know, it was all about him. He was rich. He, he prospered as he lived for himself. Eventually, he burnt every bridge with everyone in his life. He ripped off his brother's blessing. He ripped off his father-in-law. One night he hears that his brother is approaching with him with 400 men, so he goes to sleep and he starts to wrestle with God. Though he didn't know he was wrestling with God at first. Actually probably thought he could win, kind of like when you're, you know, you're a parent and you're wrestling with your kid. You make them think that they're winning until, you, you know, they don't win. But God allows Jacob to wrestle with him until Jacob, he's wore out. He can't go any longer. And Jacob then realizes what's been going on. He says, oh... I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Oh, really? Okay. So the Lord says, your name is Jacob, which means hill catcher, trickster, con artist. I'm blessing you by breaking you. I'm going to break your hip. I'm going to give you a new name. From now on, your name is Israel, which means a man governed by God. Let me say this. There are some of you today just need to stop wrestling with God. Surrender to the one who made you. Surrender to his will for your life. Surrender to His Word and what He's called you to do. He made you to live in relationship with Him and for Him. All things are made by Him and for Jesus. He's the firstborn. He's the creator of everything. Everything. I like this story. I think we've all heard it before about the time God was approached by a scientist who said, listen God, we've decided we don't need you anymore. These days we can clone people, transplant organs and do all sorts of things that used to be considered miraculous. God replied, don't need me, huh? How about we put your theory to the test? Why don't we have a competition to see who can make a human being, say, a male human being? The scientists agree, so God declares that they should do it like he did in the good old days when he created Adam. Fine, says the scientist, as he bends down to scoop up a handful of dirt. Whoa, says God, shaking his head in disapproval. Not so fast. Get your own dirt. Still, that God is still in the business of creating when we pray Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God answers and has answered that prayer. 
In fact, he says concerning his word in Psalm 102, verse 18, this will be written for the generations to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Folks, that's us. That's the church. You are yet to be created when that was wrote, written, but, but now according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. It's all because of Jesus. Look now at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. I like the way this verse reads in the New Living Translation. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. The same thing we're told in John 1. In the beginning was a word, the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, verse 17, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. So what Paul is telling us here is not only that Jesus was there before creation, but he is the one holding every created thing together. There's an interesting law of science called Collins' Law of Electricity, which is very simply like charges repel. If you have a magnet in your right hand and a magnet in your left hand, and you push the positive ends towards each other, maybe you've done this before, they push away. Now, opposite charges attract like like charges repel. But there's a, a great mystery in the nucleus of the atom Protons are packed together, which are all positive charged particles. What keeps these positive charged par- protons from repelling like the magnets? What holds them together? Science doesn't know. So they've given it a name. If they don't know what it is, they give it a name. So they call it atomic glue. That's what it is. Who is really holding it together? Jesus. He holds all creation together. But let me tell you this. There's a time when Jesus is going to let go. We're told in Second Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That was written long before men knew anything about nuclear physics or about the, the uh, things being dissolved instantaneously. We now know if that, so to speak, atomic glue, which they say holds the atom together, was to suddenly disappear Everything would dissolve in this zillion degree fervent heat accompanied by a great noise so powerful and quick it it wouldn't even be heard. I mean, think about the balance of the universe that we have going on right now. You know, what keeps the sun from getting closer to the earth and burning us up? What keeps the sun from, from drifting a little further from the earth and freezing us to death? What keeps the stars in space and the earth rotating on its axis? What keeps everything in sync in the universe? What keeps the ocean from running over the, over the land? Jesus does. He has, holds it all together. How about our lives? What keeps your marriage together? Jesus. He made them. He can fix them. By Him, all things are held together. Not just physically, but also my life personally. He holds my emotions, my family, my mental stability. He holds it all together. And I can forget that sometimes. Things fall apart and I can get upset. I get worried, stressed out. Or I think I have to try and hold us all together, even the church. And I have to remember, no, no, He holds everything together, including His church. And I need to remember to cast my cares upon Him because He cares for me. I recently saw this posted on social media of a boy who asked his father, Dad, how big is God? Looking up at the sky, his father saw a plane and asked his son, how big is that airplane? 
The boy responded, it's small, Dad. You can hardly even see it. Then the father took his son to the airport hangar. Standing in front of one of those airplanes, the father asked, and now how big is this airplane? The boy responded, oh, Daddy, this plane is enormous. At this point, the father said to him, that's how it is with God. How big he is depends on the distance between you and him. The closer you are to him, the bigger he is in your life. Now, this brings us to our final point. Number one, Jesus in relation to God. Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. He is deity. Number two, Jesus in relation to creation. He is a source of all that was and is created. He holds all things together. Now, finally, number three, Jesus in relation to his church. When it comes to the church, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Look at verse 18. And he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Right off the bat, we see that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. Now, the church is described in a lot of different ways in the Bible. It's called the vineyard. It's called the flock of God. It's referred to as a building made of living stones. But my favorite is right here. The church is the body of Christ, and Jesus is the head. Now, the the, the concept of Christ being the head is not used in the sense of the head of a company, but rather it looks at the church as a life-breathing organism. A living being made up of many parts, inseparable, tied together by the living Christ, and He is the one that controls every part of it and gives life and direction. And understand, without a, a body without a head doesn't function very well. doesn't function very long. When I was a kid, probably six or seven years old, we raised banty hens at our house and and uh, we had a, in their backyard, and we had a, a chicken coop. And one of the times they, they, they got out, and they were still a little bit small. And and uh, uh, this one, we were chasing after them to get them. And and uh, one of them tried to jump over this fence, and it landed just right where it just sliced its head off on this fence. Mom, that kind of freaked me out. But then the thing got up and started running around. But what is the guy? I mean, I was freaked out, and then it died. I mean, the the the, the true the true a chicken that can run around with it like a chicken with the head cut off. I mean, for like two minutes. Listen, it's important that the head stay attached to the body. <laughs> kind of an understatement. We want to stay connected to him because he's our head. Body can't function very long without the head. The head coordinates, it controls, it gives direction. The last thing you you, you want is a church without the head or a church with the wrong head. Our church with two heads, because then you have a monster. But I want you to take note here. The pastor is not the head of the church. The elders are not the head of the church. The people are not the head of the church. And certainly the Pope is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, some 500 years ago, that statement alone would likely get you killed by the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, if you know anything about church history, you know that there was a man by the name of John Huss who was born about 1369. He lost his life for saying the same thing. Jesus is the head of the church. Story goes that John Huss, who shortened his name from Husnick to, to Huss when he was 20 years old. Huss means goose. The nickname stuck with him so much that 100 years later, Martin Luther referred to Huss and his martyrdom as a goose that was cooked. In fact, Martin Luther quoted a prophecy that John Huss gave while he was in prison waiting his death. Martin Luther wrote, uh, John Huss prophesied about me when he wrote from his prison in Bohemia. They will roast a goose now, but in a hundred years they will hear a swan singing that they will have to put up with. A hundred years later, they had to listen to Martin Luther. I mean, here was John Huss. He was martyred July 6, 1415. He was taken to the cathedral in Prague. 
He was dressed in his priestly clothing, and then he, when he arrived in public view, he was stripped of all of his priestly garments, one garment at a time. He was then led to the stake, at which point his biographer wrote, he prayed, Lord Jesus, it is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. Have mercy on my enemies. He was heard reciting the Psalms as the flames engulfed him. Why did they execute John Huss? He said that the authority of the Bible is higher than the authority of the church. In fact, he argued particularly that Christ alone is the head of the church and not the Pope. And for that, they burned him at the stake. Century later, the young Martin Luther engaged in the same fight, and his fight was for the honor of the true head of the church. Luther said this, and I quote, and I liked it. He says, I am persuaded that if at the time St. Peter in person should preach all the articles of Holy Scripture and only deny the Pope's authority, power, and privacy, and say that the Pope is not the head of all Christendom, that they would cause him to be hanged. Yea, if Christ himself were again on earth and should preach without all doubt, the Pope would preach that with all doubt the Pope would crucify him again. The Roman church, by the way, still holds to the lies of papal headship and papal infability. Reading from the Catholic dogma, the Pope possesses full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the whole church, and not merely in matters of faith and morals, but also in church discipline and in the government of the church. End quote. I like what John MacArthur writes about this. He writes this, Fall on your knees, you popes. Fall on your knees. Fall on your knees, you kings and queens. Fall on your knees, you self-appointed lords of the church who lead it your way and not his. Fall on your knees, you who deny script or replace it with anything else. Take your place on the ground, you who put your own creativity and will between Christ and his church. All who would deny his people his word have silenced him in his own church. End quote. I strongly agree. It can't get any clearer here than verse 18. Jesus is the head of the body of the church. We're told in Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 23, 23, that God the Father, speaking of His Son, Jesus says, And He put all things in subjection under His feet, and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Did you get that? He didn't say He made Him His head to the church. He didn't say He made Him head of the church. He said, look at it, He gave Him His head over all things to the church. Wow. Paul writes, God gave the one who was already head over all the entire universe to, to the church to be her head. I think that's the most glorious kind of language by the Holy Spirit to express the love of God for His church. Listen, He didn't give us Gabriel to be head of the church. He didn't give us Michael to be head of the church. He didn't give us 10,000 really super cool angels to be head of the church. He certainly didn't give us some man called Pope to be the head of the church. He didn't give us gifted preachers or teachers or theologians and evangelists to be the head of the church. He gave us the king of the universe to be our head, to be our shepherd. And we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That means that the church is the body of Christ and Jesus is the only one who has complete authority over his church. Why? Because it's his church. It was purchased by his blood that was shed for his church and all those who would receive his forgiveness. Now, only those in the church who stay under the authority as a head of the church will grow and mature. He said that in John 15, verse 4 through 8. He says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You know, it's the same way when you see it. We get to be maybe three or four months old and, and, you know, they see they want a toy. And I see this with my, my great, my, my great, great, no, just great, my grandchildren. 
I'm not any older than that. I just have grandchildren, okay? But two little twin girls. I saw it with Madeline, you know, when she was about, about this age. But I see it with the girls now. If I hold them, they'll see something. They want to grab it. But they can't, they don't have the motor function to grab what they want. So the hand kind of goes here and here and here. You know, I kind of direct, they finally get it, you know, hold on. And they hold on to it for a little bit. And it's like, I, I want to, you know, release them from their frustration. Here, take it. Papa will give it to you. But as that baby grows and matures and develops, that, that, that body then begins to go, hey, you know what? It's listening to the head. The head say, if I, if you put your hand out of this and grab, you'll get a hold of that. So it is with the church. As we stay connected to Christ, to the head, uh, as, as our vine used in, in John 15, then we're going to start to mature under the leadership and lordship of Jesus Christ. But if we're trying to do our own thing and do our own will apart from the head, that will, we'll never develop, we'll never accomplish our, our purpose. Jesus Christ is the head of the church and all creation. He's the very uh, word of God. He's the only source of truth and salvation. Apart from Christ, we are the church. We have no hope. And, and if Jesus is the head of the church, then the church, which is his body, must have the same purpose that Jesus had. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. As his church, we need to have the same heart. Now again, the good news is that Jesus who created all things is also the creator of the church. That means, again, he holds all things together by his great love and power. He holds us together as a church. Like bricks and mortar. You know, you see him making the brick. They see it holds it together. He's the one who brings unity in the body of Christ. And our goal is to be connected to the head, to keep our eyes focused on Christ. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're to be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus. Think about this, the carnal man. The man living after the flesh, he's always focused on the body, you know. You know, a pretty girl walks by and he's looking at, at her body, you know. That, that's a carnal man. And the same way, when there's carnality in the church, we're going to be looking at the body. Well, what about them? And what about them? And judging one another. But the spiritual man or the spiritual woman keeps their eyes where they need to be on Christ and Christ alone, looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. Finally, Paul writes in verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Again, it's all about Jesus. Let me read that in the New Living Translation. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. He is the first one who ever rose from the dead. You may say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Uh, I know there are others who rose from the dead. What about Lazarus? What about the son of the widow Nan in Luke chapter 7? What about the, the widow's son in Elisha's day? What about them? Huh, 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 huh. I'll get to it. Calm down. True. They did rise from the dead. But guess what? They all had to die again. I mean, can you imagine being Lazarus? I mean, you've been in the dead, dead for three days, maybe in the presence of the Lord, and, and they had to come back. And then you go, i got to go through that all over again? See, that Jesus alone is the firstborn from the dead because he never rose, uh, he alone rose never to die again. That makes him, as it says, the supreme all over all those who rise from the dead. Also qualifies him to be the head of the church. I mean, when someone predicts their own murder, predicts that they will rise from the dead three days later and does exactly what he says he does, he's worth following. And did you know at this point in time there's only one man who has been raised in a glorified body today? It says here he's the firstborn from the dead. 
When a loved one dies in Christ now, you know, they, they put that body into the grave. You're putting it into like a, a motel. It's like putting it in a hotel for a few days because uh, there's a bright morning coming. The body's put to sleep, but the Bible says the individual, he goes on to be with the Lord, to be absent in the body, to be present with the Lord. Our spirit is with the Lord in heaven. What type of manifestation of our spirit is with the Lord? I haven't a clue. But it doesn't matter because we're with him. We're in his presence. But the Bible says when Christ comes to take his church out of this world, that that body is going to be raised. What is sown in corruption will be raised in incorruption, 1 Corinthians 15.42. We're going to be given new bodies at that point. We will be at that point according to 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Boy, that will be an incredible day. New bodies, strong, healthy, you know, never to get sick again. Finally, Paul says in verse 18, in all things he may have the preeminence. The whole point of this passage, the point of, of the book of Colossians, is to show Christ's superiority over all things. What Paul does here in this section is meant to affect us in the same way. That we see Jesus for who he is. He's the visible image of our invisible God, creator of the heavens and the earth, and he's the head of the church. I mean, think about this. Who could be head but Jesus who washed us in his blood? Who else could be head but Jesus who cast our sin as far as the east is from the west? Who else could be head uh, than Jesus who loved us before the foundation of the world? And who else could be head than Jesus who's gained the victory for us by dying on the cross? That's why we crown him King of kings and Lord of lords in our lives. Spurgeon wrote this, Let him be crowned with majesty who bowed his head to death and be his honor sounded high by all things that have breath. I want to close with this. It's a testimony, kind of a testimony of Napoleon Bonaparte as he was discussing Christ with Henry Bertrand, an officer who faithfully accompanied him into exile but did not believe in the deity of Jesus. This former emperor of France gave this witness. He says, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was not a mere man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between him and the founders of empires and the gods of their religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and the forms of pagan worship this distance of infinity. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, and his will confounds me. He commands us to believe and gives no reason besides his own inspiring claim, I am God. Between him and others in this world, there is no possible comparison. He is truly a being by himself, his sentiments, the truths which he announced, and his manner of life are unexplainable. Philosophers who try to solve the mysteries of the universe by their empty dissertations are fools. Christ speaks with authority. The closer I come, the more carefully I examine him. Everything is above me and has a grandeur which overpowers. I search in vain in history to find one similar to Jesus or anything which can approach the gospel he preached. Everything about him is extraordinary. Now, whether he came to Christ before he died or not is unknown, and it's difficult to just explain this away as nothing, but I believe that Napoleon said what he did with unbelievable insight because he saw how Jesus Christ conquered. It wasn't by force. It was through love, by winning the heart. Again, everything about Jesus is extraordinary. It's all about Jesus and all things that he might have preeminence. In other words, he has to have first place in everything, in our families, in our marriages, in our professions, 
and our missions and our ministry and matters of intellect and time and love and conversation and pleasure and eating and play and athletics and what we watch and art and music and worship. First place in everything. And that includes you getting off the throne in your life and letting Him take His proper place, surrendering your heart and life to Him. And if you have not let Him have first place in your life, if today you've been trying to hold everything together on your own, would you stop? As the saying goes, let go and let God. Maybe you've pulled back and go, I've I got to handle this and i got to handle this. I'm going to work this. i got to work this. i got to figure this out. i got to do all Let God take care of it in your life. He will. He's holding everything together. And if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Him, man, He loves you. Died on the cross for you as, as we've talked about. He wants to have that relationship with you. So I pray that you don't leave this place without making that commitment to Christ. And as soon as service is over, there'll be the, the elders up front who would love to pray with you and give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. There'll also be the guys up front if you need prayer for any other reason. I encourage you to come up for that as well. The important thing is that we put... Jesus Christ first. He's preeminent in our lives today and, and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. How powerful your word is. The description of our Savior, of our Lord Jesus. We just are in awe. And all we can say is thank you. Thank you that you hold everything together. Lord, thank you that you can hold our marriages together. There may be some marriages that are in turmoil right now, Lord, but Lord, if we look to you, you'll hold us together. You'll do that work. Maybe there's some lives that are in turmoil right now. There's, there, there's, there's just frustration or anxiety. Lord, help us to look to you, draw close to you, to see how big you really are, Lord. How you can handle anything that we bring to you. Nothing is too hard for you. Lord, but it comes back and we recognize this to, to have you have preeminence in our life, that you are first place, that it's all about you. It's not about me and my wants and what I want or what others do or don't do, but it's about you and it's about serving you and it's about, about following you and about, Lord, it's about being an example to others around me about what you would do and how you would, you would live. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives to not only know these things that we've read about, but to do these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.